All right, then. Let's begin. The book of Exodus, it is. This spring, my family, we went to North Carolina uh, just for a family trip, and we were staying in a hotel, and as we were preparing to board the elevator, uh, this alarm bell rings uh, there in the hallway, and safety lights were flashing all down the hallways wherever we looked. There was this loud, blaring beeping going on, and it told us something is wrong. And so we were kind of startled for a moment. Aaron and I are looking around. We're looking like, where are the stairs? How do we get out of here? We're on the fourth floor. And so we, we see the stairs. So we take our kids down, shuttling down the, the flights to, to get outside, to get outside to safety, to make an escape. And apparently there was smoke in the hotel. That, that's what had sent off all of these fire alarms. And to our relief, it turns out, as we were then safely outside, we got the story, somebody kept their... Toast on the toaster a bit too long, apparently. And they got more than toast. They got a lot of carbon, I guess, and fire and whatever. And we all got to be escorted out of the hotel. Wasn't that a fun afternoon? But of course, in the moment when it's going on, you have no idea what's happening. You just need to find a way out, a way to safety. And this is a part of life. We're looking for a way out. We're looking for an exodus. That's what exodus means. It's a way out. Maybe sometimes it's a way out of danger. Uh, and other times, it's a, it's a way out of something that, that isn't pleasant, something going wrong in our life. Or, or sometimes we just want to break. At least that's what all of the travel agents and timeshare solicitors try and sell us on, saying things like, escape for the weekend, visit this beach resort and have an unforgettable getaway. You never heard this. Others actually pay to escape. They go to escape rooms. They pay people money to lock them in a room so they have the fun of getting out. We just love the thrill of escaping. We want something better. See, this is where it's at. We're always trying to escape to something else. Sometimes we're just looking for advice, opportunity, a way to escape. Maybe it's a certain job or employer. We just need to get out of a rut. Maybe it's a rut in our work. Maybe it's a rut in our marriage. We need a way out. We need an escape. We need a change. And that's what Exodus means. It's a way out. A way of escape, a rescue from danger and hardship, as we'll see for the people of Israel in particular. But what Israel must learn as they are being liberated from slavery is that there are greatest dangers and troubles that we need a way out from, we can't find on our own. There's no code to crack in the escape room. As a way out, we need to be rescued. We need to be delivered. The biblical word that we'll see in Exodus is that we need to be redeemed. We need a redeemer. And that's what Exodus is all about. It's about God coming to his people to redeem, to rescue his people, yes, out of bondage and slavery, but it doesn't end there. They're being rescued to something, or really what the book of Exodus is about, you're being rescued to someone, namely God. This book is a reintroduction to who God is. You're going to learn about who Yahweh, the Lord God, is. You're God. And it strikes me, the book of Exodus, probably of the whole Old Testament, has two of the, the most glorious revelations of God and His character. In Exodus 3 and Exodus 34. Lord willing, we'll see those in time to come. With this book, yes, it's about redemption, it's about a way out, but it's about a way in to a relationship with God and who He is. So this morning, 
Did you come in here feeling like you're in a rut, that you need to escape, that life seems flat? Maybe even in relationship to your faith, your relationship with God seems stagnant. Or maybe you feel the bondage, the bondage of those desires that you just can't escape, those habits you can't break. Or maybe you just came in here, you're not sure what you need, but you know you need something. You need a way out, you need to change, a way out from where you've been. So again, we turn to the book of Exodus to learn about a God who redeems, who saves, who rescues from the strongest, most enslaving powers that can be known. But to get there, we got to begin, and we begin with God's Word, because that's where God begins. He redeems and saves and promises to rescue, but He does so by His Word. He spoke creation by His Word. The Word, God the Son, came to redeem us, and to His Word we turn. That's where our rescue begins. It begins and is founded upon the surety, the trustworthiness, the stability, how the unmoving Word of God in a totally changing, malleable world. So the theme this morning, even when your life seems quiet, it seems like things aren't changing and that's not a good thing. Things seem uneventful, or maybe they seem very eventful, and life is getting hard now, and the difficulty is arising, suffering is coming up. Know this, God's Word holds true. It hasn't changed. He is true. He hasn't changed. And even in the hardest parts of life, or maybe the dullest it seems like, God and His Word are still energized and at work. He's right here, and He is by His Word. We'll see that in two ways come out in this opening section of the book of Exodus. And it begins in what's first you could call the long silence. Note this, even in the long silence, it seems, God's promise holds true. His word's still at work. It hasn't changed. Verses 1 to 7. Even if you haven't, so to speak, heard from God in a while... His promises haven't failed, but that means His people have to wait on Him and on His timing. And that's where we open with the people of Israel that are now in Egypt as this book begins. But as we begin our study of this book of redemption, we do well, we have to set the stage. We've got to lay the foundation from where this book launches from. And Moses actually gives you a clue. He wants you to know where we've launched from. Because in the original Hebrew, this book begins with the word and. Now, you look at your English Bible, it probably doesn't have an and. Maybe it has a now. Mine begins with these are. They don't put the and in the front. Why? If I can say it this way, that ain't good English to start with and. That's English grammar. We're talking about Hebrew grammar. In Hebrew grammar, it's good to begin with and when you're trying to say this picks up from where the story left off. The point is, The book of Exodus is just transitioning from the last page in your Bible, the book of Genesis. It's just the continuation of the same story, picking right up where it left off. And so to set the stage for the book of Exodus, you need to remember the book of Genesis. And that's a good thing for us, right? Because we studied Genesis four years ago. I don't know about you, but even sometimes at lunch on Sundays, I forget what I preached. You're not the only one. But the good thing is Moses, the author of Exodus, he helps us out. 
Yes, he assumes you're familiar with Genesis, but then he provides clues to jog your memory. Oh, I've heard that before. And we'll try and make some of those connections. But we have to set the stage in, well, what was God doing in the book of Genesis? Well, remember, he gave this great promise to bless the world, to bless all the nations and families of the earth, but he was going to do it through one particular man and his family. Of course, this was Abraham. Remember the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 to 11 deals with the whole world, but then everything focuses on Genesis 12, really to Malachi chapter 4, the rest of the Old Testament, focuses on one family, one dude, Abraham. Because of this first promise the Lord gave him, this is in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord promised Abraham this, He said, go from your country, Abraham, and your kindred and your father's house to the land, note this, that I will show you. And, God promised, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this one man, this with a barren wife, is writing the, the promise of God to bless the whole world. And this was very important because blessing was not a default setting between us and God at this point. And why was that? We'll go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. God made everything, and it was good, and it was in perfect fellowship with God. And that was true about us, those who made to be His image bearers, to have fellowship with Him. We dwelt with Him in the garden. But then what happened? We rebelled. We sinned. We cut ourselves off from God. Adam went his own way. And with him, we all went under death. The cost of sin separating ourselves from the very source of life. We were cast out of the garden into a cursed ground and world where death brings us back to the ashes. Blessing was gone. Curses were upon us, self-inflicted. But happily in the book of Genesis, immediately, as we messed everything up, a God like ours, there's hope because He is merciful and gracious. And so He has this rescue mission to come down and redeem and make His people to be blessed again, that the favor of God would once again be upon man, but it's going to be channeled through this one vessel, Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then his son, Isaac, and then his son, Jacob. It gets passed on to Jacob's 12 sons. They live together in this land that God promised them, the land of Canaan. This little strip of land on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea promised to Abraham and his descendants forever. This is where God's going to meet with them to bless them, that then they can bless the world. So to sum up, what have we seen? By God's promise in Genesis, you got a chosen people in a chosen place. It all revolves around this one guy and this one land. And with that in mind, we come to the book of Exodus, and as we start reading, we run into some problems. Some concerning developments as Genesis ended and Exodus begins. Look at verse 1 now of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Oh, and yeah, and Joseph was already in Egypt. So first off, good thing, we got the right people. We got the right chosen family. The names of all the sons of Israel are here, but there are really a few. I mean, it's a big family, but they're no nation like what God promised they would be. It's hard to see how through these, what, 70-something people, you're going to bless the whole worldwide. But here's the other big problem. 
this group of people is rather small. But second, the family of blessing was promised to have a special land to live in. They're not there. And they haven't been there for some time. They're in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And then add to this, all of them, even as the patriarchs here are all listed out, these are the fathers of what become the 12 tribes of Israel. They're all dying, passing away with the promises not fulfilled. And that's where you start to wonder, right? God, what's going on? You made these promises. I don't see them happening. What gives God? I don't see it happening. Have you forgotten? Hello up there. Because add to all this, not only are they small, not only are they in the wrong place, not only are they dying, but all this time, there is no special word from God. Just silence. Now, to clarify, God predicted that this was going to happen, that they were going to go to Egypt, and it was going to be actually a long time. If you recall, back to Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, where did this all start? God told him that his family was going to live as strangers in the land for 400 years. But it's going to be a long, hard stay. They're going to be afflicted there. They'll eventually get out. But you're going to have to wait a long, long time. 400 years. And also the Lord God had reassured Jacob too, Abraham's grandson. For as that great patriarch, the one that goes down to Egypt, leading the tribe down there, as he's pondering this, the Lord gives him some assurances about, no, this is okay. This is part of my plan. We hear this in Genesis chapter 46, verses 3 and 4. God tells him and says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for, here's the reason, there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. So as you're pondering leaving the promised land, this would be some reassurance, wouldn't it? First of all, God tells him, don't be afraid to go. What's the implication? I got a plan here. I've thought about this. Second, this is the very place I'm going to fulfill my promise to make you a nation, to make you a people. Again, when I started with Abraham, he had a barren wife, and they had a really hard time getting any kids. Then by the time of Jacob having all of his wives, we'll get a few more. The point is, they're still just a family. But he promised him that this would be the place, for there I will make you into a great nation. He's going to bless them, multiply them there. And finally, God pledges and you're not going to stay there. I will bring you up from here, speaking on behalf of him to the nation. So get this. I promised that I'm going to make you a great nation, a populous nation. I promised to give you a land, and that's not Egypt, by the way. I promised to bless you, to make you a blessing to the world. I promised God said it, he's going to do it. Even if it has to take 400 years. And see, that's the hard part. The waiting and the silence in between. No new, no new information, no confirming word. You just got to go by what he said. Because consider that the last word that they got from God 
By the time we get to the book of Exodus, the last word they got was Genesis 46, this reassurance to Jacob, it's okay to go down. And they don't hear a word for 400 years. They hadn't heard a word, and then the guy who got it, Jacob, he died. And then Joseph died. And then all the brothers died. Still no special word. Then a generation comes and goes. Then no other word. There's still no word. It's just a long silence. And again, we cry out, God, what are you doing? Are you there? Are we connected still? Is this a fake hang-up? And maybe when you don't hear any word, you start to wonder, huh, Maybe he doesn't care. And over the long silence, it becomes all the more tempting to think things like that, especially when suffering kicks in, when it gets really hard, when you really need him. Now, we're not there yet in the life of Israel, thankfully, because look at verse 7. So while they haven't heard from God in some time, Things are going rather swimmingly, actually, even though they haven't got any special word from God. Things are going good, even in God's silence. Look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So finally, some good news, right? Just as God promised, they're finally becoming a nation, a populous people. Again, contrast this fertility with where it all began with Abraham. But now God's people have undergone a baby boom. The Jews are like popping up everywhere. In the words here, they were fruitful and increased greatly, multiplied and grew strong, so the land was filled with them. I mean, this is incredible. Now, listen again to that language from verse 7 carefully and see if it does not sound rather familiar. They multiplied and grew, or let's start back. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Of course it does, because I read Genesis, right? If it jogged your mind, this is straight out of Genesis chapter 1. When God spoke to his image bearers at the beginning of creation, it says, And God blessed them and said to them, what did he say? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the same word here. God's blessings are coming upon this people. God's blessing to the world being targeted through this family is now spreading as the Jews are multiplying. So then what do we see? God may be silent in this period, but He's definitely not absent. He's not lazy. He's not unengaged. And actually, He's been working for those 400 years with each successive family from one generation to the next, keeping His Word, keeping that hope of the blessing to the world alive by keeping this family alive. Because now they're not just a large family. They're not to rival, I won't even mention the names, the families here that are rather large, with large vans to take all of their kids. We're not talking a large family. We're talking they're a nation now, a people, target of God's favor. But remember, during all of this 400 years, there was no special word about that. They didn't get updates on their phones reminding them from God. Oh yeah, I'm still on track. I'll be there in no time. 
They weren't able to check their email and see that, oh, my package was shipped and it's going to arrive at this date. They didn't get those reassurances. See, God's not obligated, nor does he need to send us repeated, up-to-date reassurances to let us know that his word is sure and trustworthy. You know what he can do? He can just say it once and it's still true. He's that faithful. He's that reliable. He follows through on his word every time. Even if it takes, to our perspective, a long, long time, hundreds or now 2,000 years, when he gives the promise, he keeps it every time. What does that mean? That means his ancient word, yes, it's very old, but it's very up to date. It's very sure, and it's engaged Just as like when the matter, he spoke it. It doesn't expire, no matter how long ago it was. Because consider that. Remember, our God, he's not stuck in time like we are. He's not waiting around. He didn't speak to Jacob, and then he's like, okay, well, set the timer. We'll go to 400 years. Oh, ding, okay. Let's give a new word. That's not how this works with him. What do we know about our God? He's the God who is. He's the God who was. He was the God who is to come. And He's all of that at the same time. He's ever present. There's no one like Him. What's the implications of this? Well, think back to 2 Peter. Peter's living in a time when people are coming to mock God. When is God going to come and judge? Ha! He hasn't come for thousands of years. He's not coming back. And what does Peter then remind us? In 2 Peter, he says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What's the point? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. We count slowness a lot differently than God. He's from eternity We're in time. We're stuck here. But it's not slow to the eternal God. He doesn't change, nor do His plans or His word. He just calls us, though, to be patient and to trust Him. He will fulfill every bit of His promise, His word to you, again, even if He doesn't send you a reminder on your phone in a text message. Or if he doesn't give you a special dream or a sign or whatever coincidences or liver shivers that make you think, oh, this is confirmation, this is the Word of God. No, he has spoken it loud and clear. It's written right here. And he's promised it. He's spoken clearly in his Word and that to forgive all that trust in Christ. He promised clearly in his Word to raise the dead as he raised Christ He's promised to eradicate all evil. He's promised to condemn the wicked. He's promised to forgive all in Christ. And the seeming delay to us is not reason to think that God changed His mind. The seeming long time to us does not mean God forgot or He lost interest or He misplaced His calendar. No, He is interested in His name, that His name and His reputation, that He's a faithful God who keeps His word. So he says, be patient. His old word is still good. It's as applicable as it ever was, as applicable as the very day he spoke it or wrote it. So instead of impatiently 
looking for some sensational word, we are called to patiently trust His word that He's already given, that He's already promised to you. Because what has He said? Whatever it was, it hasn't changed. It's still true. It hasn't diminished. So we're called to be faithful. Faithful, full of faith, that means, in God's promises. And that means faithful in a generation to whatever God has called us. I mean, consider back to the context here of Exodus. For these 400 years, I mean, how many generations there were that never had a new word from God? They never had any special miracle or dream or any book of the Bible, actually, except maybe Job. Yet, in the main, as a whole, they were faithful, faithful to wait on God to keep all His Word. One generation after the next, relaying the promises to the next one, raising their families in the admonition of the Lord and passing on the gospel to the next generation. This was faithfulness, knowing that the Lord will complete His Word. Again, that takes patience. It's everyday faithfulness over sensationalism, and it takes patience. That's hard with God. That is me trusting God with that. Especially, as we'll talk about, when things go squirrely in my life or things are going bad, I don't know about you, but then, okay, figured out, it's time to pray about this. And then I'm like, okay, I prayed about it. 30 seconds ago, what happened? Where are you at? Three days ago, I prayed about this. I was praying about this this whole last year. What do you mean it hasn't taken place? Try 400. What does faithfulness look like? Trusting His Word is true. Being faithful. Even if that means you're not in the glamour generation. It's going to be written about in Christian history books. You know, maybe we're not the generation of the third great awakening on this continent. Maybe we're not going to be the generation that's going to get the gospel to every people group on the earth. Maybe we're not the generation that's going to plant the most churches, support the most missionaries, or grow to be the most influential church the world has ever seen. That's not up to us. But what are we called to be? Faithful, trusting His promise, waiting on Him, every day faithfully seeking Him, looking to Christ to finish the work. That looks like us faithfully speaking about Him to one another and to others. Faithfully making disciples. Faithfully entrusting the gospel to the next generation and to any who will listen. Faithfully discipling our children and bringing up new disciples brought to Christ. This is what we're called to. That's our role. Maybe we're not the rapture generation or the church of the last days. That doesn't matter. We're called to be the faithful generation to pass on the baton in the relay race. What are you doing to pass the baton? Or are you just holding it and standing there? May we be faithful. His word's going forth. May we join him in it. And we need no special instruction. Next, we see that God's word and plan are still at work, even if he hasn't said anything lately. But this is admittedly much harder to see for our hearts, not just when there's been seeming silence, but pour on that when there is now suffering. But see this, even in the suffering, God's plan is still at work. This is verses 8 to 14. So back to Exodus 1 as we turn to the next paragraph. This is a, it's a story, a plot. In every plot, you have to have a conflict. You have to have a problem. You have to have a chief antagonist. 
What's the threat to God's promises and His people? Well, beginning here, it's Pharaoh in Egypt. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And what has banged the head of scholars and historians and pastors on sabbatical is that we don't know who this king is. Who is this new king over Egypt? Part of the difficulty rests in that Moses never gives, him his, gives us his name. Actually, it's probably three different pharaohs in Exodus 1, 2, and 3 here of this whole book, and it's probably three different pharaohs therein. Actually, none of the kings in Egypt get personal names as Moses writes them. He just writes here about this new king who doesn't know Joseph. Now, if the Egyptian records are accurate, which there's question about that for sure, but if they are accurate and we line them up with the biblical chronology, that probably gives us that this new king who came to power, and this is significant, would be Pharaoh Amos I. He was the founder of what's called the 18th Egyptian dynasty. Why is this important, this historical fact? Well, he was the first king to reunite Lower and Upper Egypt. And this was important because he drove out the Hiskos people. The Hiskos were strangers that came into Egypt and ruled that place, and they were Semitic from what we understand. They have some relationship, it seems like, to the Jewish people from Canaan or others that live in Canaan. And so this king, Amos, he drove out this Hiskos people, reunited Egypt under him, and then he sees not the Hiskos people, but another Semitic people popping up all under his nose. And this troubles him. Because this is the important thing. He doesn't know Joseph. He isn't aware that Joseph and what the Jews had, did, had done to establish Pharaoh and his rule in the nation. Again, go read the book of Genesis. That is, so instead, since he doesn't know Joseph, instead of seeing the Jews as a blessing to his kingdom, he saw them as a threat. Verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold! The people of Israel are too many and are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. He's a paranoid ruler. And he can't help but recognize, oh, there's something special about these Jews. They're popping up everywhere. And what is he most scared about? Not only that they would overpower him and the Egyptians, but that they would leave. That's his great fear, that they would escape from the land. This can't happen. Well, we better chain them down. So his solution, brutal slavery. Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Python and Ramses. And this word here in verse 11 of afflict them fulfills the very prediction that God gave to Abraham all of those years before in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Again, at that time, God told Abraham this. He said, Know for certain, and again, this is obviously hundreds of years before, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not there, and they will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted, same word from Exodus 1, for 400 years. Afflicted with harsh slavery to build for Pharaoh his storehouses. All of this work for the glory of Pharaoh and his kingdom. But God foretold this. He's keeping his promise every bit of the way. What's the point? God is still at work even in the suffering. 
such that as we look to the next verse now, verse 12 of Exodus 1, we see that God's plans to bless His people are not interrupted in the least. Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread about. Again, this repeats the Sign of blessing from verse 7. They're just multiplying everywhere. The more they're persecuted, the more they're oppressed, the more God favors them and they multiply. And this is leading to loathing and dread, the text reads, among the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And why? Why would they now loathe or dread in particular the Jews? Well, when you're trying to stop something and then your attempts to stop it, just multiply it, it could become a frightening thing. I mean, just think of a pest, some infestation of ants or cockroaches or mice, and everything you do still have no effect. They just keep turning up every night. Ah! Because it's one thing to have them in your house, but then to do everything you can to get rid of them, except call Josh Lush, who's a member here. He'll take care of them for you. But nevertheless, you do everything in your own power to get rid of them, and it does nothing. You just start to loathe those beasts every time you see a new one. And so the Jews seemed like this to Pharaoh, popping up everywhere like a pest to be squashed. And so this dread and loathing led to harsher slavery. Look at verse 13 and following. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What do you hear repeatedly in there? Hard service, bitter lives, slaves, ruthless slavery. Harsh slavery, bondage, mandatory service with harsh consequences if it wasn't obeyed. They've made life bitter for the Jews. Is that what it means to be God's people? See, we've, we've set up now, this is the pickle that God's people are in. The more they're blessed by God, the more they're afflicted. And as that goes on, you might think, maybe I don't want so much of this blessing. Their lives are starting to seem hopeless. What can be done? Must we suffer? Are we really blessed? These are where the questions go. Is this really what it means to be God's people? God, what are you doing? How can this ever fit in your plan? I thought you were good. I thought you loved me. And yet this is suffering. How does suffering work, work in your plan? And then we have to stop, time out, and say, well, where have we ever seen suffering to do something good in God's plan? Of course, the cross that we celebrate in Herald is the ultimate champion of that truth, isn't it? Suffering is no stranger to the salvation plan of God. For it was that greatest suffering, the most unjust, most unwarranted suffering in all of history was done as Jesus, who was sinless, took our sins on the cross. That if we trust Him, we are forgiven, we are loved, we are made right with God because of His suffering. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Because that's how He brings us to God. And that's how it must be in this sin-messed-up world we've made. There's going to be suffering. Suffering. 
with how horrible sin is, with how good our God is, and how holy He is, the only way that we can be rid of suffering in this world or in the death and penalty of it is it has to get paid. And that's what God the Son did. He came down from heaven to live the life that you couldn't live. The perfect one, the sinless one, the only one who didn't deserve to suffer, suffered more than any other ever has. But not for his sins, because he had none, but for yours if you trust in him. And so by his suffering, he restores us and brings us back to God. Cannot God do amazing things through suffering? Now, to be clear, your suffering you undergo cannot do anything to atone for your sins. This isn't like, well, I go through enough bad karma, maybe good things will happen to me in the afterlife. Uh Uh-uh. This is Christ takes your suffering. He conquers death. He rose from the dead. Trust in him. That's where mercy's found, and it's free if you do so. Just trust in him. You can do that right in your seat in this moment, saying, why did you suffer for me? Because I love you, and I died for you, and I'm risen for you. Then trust him. But what about suffering in my life? God, what's your plan there? We don't always know. Maybe some of you are suffering right now. You have no idea why that's going on. Why am I going through this trial, God? Why? I thought you loved me. I thought you were for me. I thought that's what the cross said, but then I got this pain in my life. Well, first of all, just as we go back to the book of Genesis, remember the whole story with Joseph? Remember how that ends? What happened there? Remember, his brothers sold him to slavery. They wronged him horribly. And then at the end of the story, they're begging Joseph to forgive them. And here's what Joseph tells him. This is Genesis 50, verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you brothers, when you sold me to slavery, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. God accomplished amazing things through even that evil. Now, the thing is, we don't have a Genesis 50 for our life. We don't know exactly why God does all this suffering. But as we do know this in the New Testament, we hear some purposes, good things that suffering can do. First, First Peter says it strengthens our faith. The book of James tells us that suffering produces steadfastness, endurance, hope, maturity in the faith. Paul in Romans chapter 5 says suffering produces in us hope. Why? Because it whets our spiritual appetite. It wakes us up, doesn't it? It snaps us out of spiritual complacency to say, what what have I been living for? And we're going to see, you can imagine the Jews, 400 years, things seem to be going pretty good for some time. And then suffering happens. And then it wakes them up. Whoa, where am I? What am I doing? Where is my home? What do the promises of God have to say about this? Have I been looking to God at all? Same reminders we need as we walk through suffering. I must look to the promises of God. Why? Because they are sure. They haven't changed, even as my life does. He is a rock. So are you suffering this morning? Look to the unchanging rock that is our God and His Word. Now, if you're tempted to answer that question, no, I don't think I'm really suffering this morning. Things are going pretty good. Feeling pretty content. First, praise God for His mercies to you. But second, yeah, you may be content, but be warned of complacency. It's very easy. Be warned of forgetting that 
While you might live in the most free society in all of history, apart from Christ, you are enslaved to your lust and your sins. And if you want proof of that, think about just Western culture, the, for example, the past 10 years. We've thrown off, seems like, every boundary we can, that no one defines us, certainly not God and our biology. And what have we given ourselves over? We have the most freedom, supposedly, to do whatever we want. And what do we find, apart from Christ? People are more and more bound to their sin, aren't they? Or have you been suffering from the bondage of sin this week? Because that's real. And understand, there's only one way out of that slavery. There's only one exodus. And you need to find that you have no way out of yourself. You needed a redeemer. His name is Jesus Christ. Romans 6.6. 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ. If we trust in him. In order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But it only comes by Christ's liberating power. Such that Christian this morning. Again, Paul reminds us in Romans 6 verse 11. Count yourselves. Think about this. Think about these promises of God. You are dead to sin. Dead because he died for it. And now you're alive and walk in life. Do that this week, brothers. Take these gospel truths and walk by them. Will you pray? Will you see, like Israel, cry out to their God? Will you cry out to Him? Will you reform your thinking by the promises of His Word? Or will you just go by coasting, by whatever messages come to you? No, we got to fight it with His sure Word. That's an unchanging message we have life by. Because that's where His Spirit speaks to us. That's where we get changed. That's where He empowers our heart. And He has spoken so clearly right in this book, right in His promises. So we're going to ask for His help. May we not waver one jot or iota or small thing from them. Help us, O Holy Spirit. Let's pray together.